Hello, everyone. This is Saqib, and uh, I've invited podcast friend Andrew Burton here for a nice detailed chat. Today, uh, we'll we'll take a deeper dive into some of these terms that most of us have uh, used on Twitter, uh, myself included, but I did not know the origin and source. Uh, so we're going to be talking uh, ATP Dark Age, Lost Boys, you know, Lost Generation, the stuff that we always ramble when we're using, you know, any insinuation to describe Dimitrov's shortcomings or why Nishikori is injured, why these guys are just not good enough, uh, and all that stuff. So hope this is an engaging con- uh, conversation, and most of you who listen to this podcast have a good time. And yeah, of course, welcome, Andrew, once again. It's an absolute pleasure to be doing this. Hey, Sakib. Uh, I hope this is going to be fun. So yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned the premise of this conversation. Uh, so before we get into all the data and all the uh, analysis that you have uh, compiled, what triggered the study? What 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 caught your attention, and why you know you came up with this kind of a study? So back in 2012, 2013, you had a fairly well established narrative to what was going on in the ATP. It was dominated by the big four: Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray. Not necessarily in that order. And one of the questions that people were asking was when is the next generation going to break through? So you had some players starting to make an impression, sometimes for style as opposed to substance. But you had, for example, Milos Raonic um, winning some hardcore U.S. tournaments. Then in 2013, um, I noticed how pleased Stan Wawrinka was to make it through to the ATP Tour Finals in November 2013. And and I stopped and I thought, wait a second, I don't think anybody from the generation after the Novak, um, Rafa, Murray, Del Potro generation, I don't think any of them have made it to a a World Tour Finals. So I I took a look and, uh, yep, sure enough, there was this missing group of players that didn't seem to have broken through. They hadn't won a Masters 1000. They hadn't won a Grand Slam in 2013. They hadn't reached any Grand Slam finals. So there was this kind of sense that there was this 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 gap. And then I started to, to follow this up. And then by November 2014, even though... Uh, a few players had qualified for the World Tour Finals from that generation, they still hadn't won a Masters 1000. They still hadn't won any Grand Slams. And and I was pretty convinced I was onto something then. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, then, of course, you know, we know how this uh, study started. So then you started studying the generations before, like the Generation Pete, and you call them Generation Guga. How did you come up with the uh, naming convention and why you used a certain player to represent a particular generation? I see it's separated by five years, but you can do better explaining uh, for the audience. So, you know, I'd known for a long time that um, Federer is born in August 1981, Nadal is born in June 1986, so they're separated almost exactly by five years. Born in in mid-year... So I started thinking, okay, well, if I put five years around Roger, 
you know, that takes you to the start of 1979 and the end of 1983. You've got a five-year period then. So call that generation fed. Then for Nadal, he's just about exactly in the middle of 1986. So five years, either you know, two and a half years either side of that, a five-year period. You've got um, 1984 to 1988. Mm-hmm. So then you've got a group of players 1989 to 1993, and the player who's in the middle of that era is Dimitrov, who had had some success up to then. So I call that, okay, that's Generation Grigor. And then if you go backwards into the 1970s, players born between 1974 and 1978, uh, Guga Quirton, three Grand Slams at Roland Garros. You know, he's, he's pretty much in the middle of that group. So... Generation Guga, go back from 1976 to 1971. Pete Sampras is there, so call that Generation Pete. And you can keep on walking back. You've got Generation Stefan. You've got uh, Generation Ivan. You can keep on walking it back. Mm. And what you can do is basically look at um, how the generations have played out through Grand Slams and how they've played out through Masters. Uh, and, and get a really rich and deep sense of how tennis has evolved in the in the open era and as they've been playing the Masters tournaments, which, you know, now have about a 30-year history in terms of, of their real importance at ATP level. Uh, I know you've done this for a while and you kind of know these numbers inside out because uh, it's a good research and it's a good barometer for, you know, people like us. We can use these examples you know, in our discussions or even in our articles and just prove a point. So um, I'm sure with Generation Felix coming up, what's what's the cycle looking like? Are the generations, you know, after a nosedive, say, of the Lost Boys, are the generations getting better? Or is there more hope? Or are the numbers still staying consistent that uh, uh, some of these charts that you have compiled depict? Well, so, you know, I think that we can can talk in a little while about – um, you know, particularly Generation Grigor, which is, has, has been my main focus. Generation Nick, which is the one that follows Generation Grigor, so that's uh, Kyrgios. Um, that's for players born between 1994 and 1998. And what was fascinating was that Alexander Zverev, who was uh, the winner in Rome and in Canada last year, Generation Nick won Masters titles, Masters 1000 titles, before Generation Grigor did, even though they come five years later. So Zverev could be seen as a standard bearer, and there's typically one or two standard bearers for a generation. Um, So... He's had a lot of success. Then you go to the recent Australian Open and you had two more generation Nick players, Kyle Edmund and Hyun Chung, making it through to the semifinals uh, and no generation Grigor making it through the semifinals. So we're seeing generation Nick be closer to being on track in what we'd expect for their evolution than Generation Grigor has been. Generation Grigor um, yeah, has been missing in action for, for really a long time. 
that generation Felix for the Canadian player Auger Alissam, uh, who seems to be a prodigy in, in that age group. You have uh, Alex de Minor, who, who made a bit of a splash at the Australian Open this year and took Zverev to five sets in the Davis Cup. And you have uh, Denis Shapovalov, the uh, Canadian uh, prodigy who had his breakthrough last year in Canada, beating Nadal and then having a relatively deep run at the US Open. I think it's way too early, really, to be able to tell what Generation Felix is going to do. You know, they're just now making an entry into the top tournaments, the Masters Thousands and the Grand Slams, and sometimes as wild cards. Uh, Generation Nick, we're getting a bit more of a sense. And like I said, they seem to be more on track than the previous generation uh, which is Generation Griggle. So if, you, if you're thinking about younger generation players, I, I, I think it's reasonable to say at this stage, although it's still early in their development, that the next gen is potentially more promising than the previous generation. I uh, know, makes sense. I mean, uh, even look at the metrics. We, we can get into the metrics a little later, but uh, uh, from my understanding, and I'm sure you might agree, uh, mostly tennis, you know, has a, a player is playing when he breaks on the ATP tour, he's playing he, as a youngster, playing you know some of the established players. Then uh, he has a rival uh, who maybe you know a few years younger, like that was the case with Lendl and Becker. Then Federer and Nadal did the same thing, and then at the tail end, you are kind of playing the next generation. So just using uh, Lendl as a barometer, that's when I got into tennis, and he was the epitome of the game. Okay. And uh, he was challenging. He was the force that was blocking Agassi. Uh, at those two U.S. Open semifinals. But then his back injury, you know, in early 90s uh, was the beginning of his demise. Uh, so I use him as a standard, but then mm-hmm. uh, comparing him uh, with the Federer generation, these guys are still winning major titles. Federer and Nadal's, you know, right up there as number one player in the world, slightly younger. So you think uh, if you look at the trend, maybe the Federer-Nadal, the longevity of this generation is has kind of uh, been an all-time high longevity at the top? Because Lendl and Sampras were great, and they represented great numbers, but uh, something changed in the game, and maybe that's why we missed out on a generation uh, called the the Lost Boys or Dimitra Vrauna generation. I think that that there's a lot of evidence that the game has changed fundamentally, and it's begun to advantage uh, experience, longevity, if you if you like, above youth and quickness in a way that wasn't present before. And and the best way to look at that is if you use the site Tennis Abstract, um, which has a wealth of data going back many years, and you look for the rankings of players younger than age 23, and you look at the rankings of players older than 30 or 31 or so, if you go back 10 or 15 years, there were barely any players in their 30s in the, in, in the top 100 or so. There would be a few, typically the, the, the guys who'd been the elite champions, so a guy like Andre Agassi, but not very many. And now if you look at players over 30, they're, they're pretty much the dominant force in the ATP right now, whereas the young players you used to have Safin, Hewitt, you, you used to have players 
who were making it into the top three in their early 20s. And that has stopped happening now. And so there's there's a real question about why that is. Is it because something has changed fundamentally in tennis? Is it because the Federer and, and Rafa generation is so good, and particularly the, the big three or the big four, have been so good that they basically blocked players out from, from coming through? Or is it the case that, that we, we've had a missing generation? And in my view, there's arguments to be made for each of those um, opinions. And, and you basically, you can, you can mix them together in your own proportions, just as you might mix a martini differently and say, okay, I give more weight to this idea and less weight to this idea. Yeah, could it be the combination of a few things? Maybe, again, using Lendl as a parameter, because a lot of people say he was the first real athlete uh, in tennis who made tennis physical and he had his fitness regime, you know, his diet. You know, he, 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 he was traveling with multiple coaches even back then. And uh, he switched rackets just to win Wimbledon, which, of course, he did not. So he brought a certain professionalism. And that time, the courts and the ATP, uh, it was still a very fast surface ATP uh, besides the clay. And then you think maybe it was something that was set in motion, but it came to full, uh, a full you know, journey, a full circle when uh, the surfaces were slowed down and uh, uh, string technology, uh, the Luxilon polyester string made its debut. You think those, are, are they connected in your mind? Maybe all the pieces came together and, you know, you don't see a Becker or a Chang breakthrough anymore. I know it's kind of a confusing uh, way to put it, but do you see the connection where I'm going with this? I do. I mean, one of the things that you have to be a bit careful with when you talk about the elite, and I think of Lendl as one of the elite, Agassi, Sampras, um, you know, the recent big four, obviously, so pretty small sample size. They don't come along. Um, they don't come along at regular intervals. One of the things that that you know, as as we as we get to talking about a generation's analysis is that I always think of it as a cohort analysis rather than an elite player analysis. So I'm really interested in what the top 10 players are doing from a generation, not just the top one or two. But Lendl, I think, was was one of the first players really to demonstrate that you could play consistently well through your 20s on all surfaces and then play into your 30s. Now, when you look at another two of the elite, uh, Sampras and Agassi, Sampras was kind of like the classic model that by the time he got to 30, which uh, I I think he was 30 in, um, I think it was uh, 2001, he was still making major finals but he wasn't winning as often as he had. And then he had that glorious run at the U.S. Open and then essentially retired after that. So he didn't go deep into his 30s. Now, Agassi did, but Agassi had a, a, a much more roller coaster career where you know he was out for periods of time. And Agassi's career, if you look at if you chart it out, is real peaks and valleys. So Agassi was the exception rather than the rule. But when you get to the, the 2010s, um, I think if you look at the way that tennis is played in 
2017, say you look at the, the prior year, and then you look at the way that the game was played in 2007, 2008, I don't think you notice nearly as much of a difference as you do going back 10 years before. So if you look at tennis played in 1997, 1998, I think it looks quite different to tennis in 2007, 2008. Tennis in 2017, 18, not so much different to um, 2007, 2008. So there hasn't been any really startling tactical developments. There haven't been any really startling technology changes. But what has happened, I think, is that there's been a lot more emphasis placed on recovery, a lot more emphasis played on on deep conditioning and, you know, all-round technique. And so what you're seeing is players in their late 20s, let's take Marin Cilic as an example, uh, essentially made his Grand Slam breakthrough in 2014 when he was age 26. That's much later than players used to, to make their Grand Slam breakthrough. And then in 2017, 2018, he had two finals taking on Federer at Wimbledon and the US Open uh, at the age of, uh, he was born in uh, 1988. So he's um, doing the math quickly in my head, about 29 years old. So that's, that, that's pretty late career. Um, another late career player, Stan Wawrinka didn't really make a breakthrough until about 2013, won his first major in uh, 2014. Uh, and I believe Stan was born in 1985. I'm saying that from memory. But again, very late 20s, and then he won two more majors after that at a much later stage in his career than you would typically have expected 10 years or so before. So something really has happened to make players in their late 20s and early 30s much more competitive than they were before. Now, is that a positive thing in, in that they're doing something a lot different? Or, and this is partly my hypothesis, that the guys who you would have expected to break through in their early 20s, the Raonic's, Nishikori's, Dimitrov's, and guys like um, Bernard Pear. Uh, Bernie Tomic, uh, Dominic Team, these are guys who we would have expected to be competing in major semifinals and finals and master semifinals and finals, and, and they were missing. So a, a lot of this is about really the players who weren't there. Interesting. So then uh, one of the takeaways from you know the first few minutes of this uh, podcast is uh, the threshold of a player reaching his potential or uh, not necessarily peak uh, has gone up for sure uh, because the game has become more physical and uh, we are not seeing a physical specimen like a Becker or Safin breakthrough. Uh, now, let me add one more element to this uh, because uh, this change has started happening with the generation Fed and since 2001, we've had 32 seeds. So do you see any assist of the seeding system for uh, the glorious run that you know we've had in the last 15 years, including, uh, I'm sure it's impacted some of uh, some generation, but uh, do you see that as a factor as well? To be honest, I don't. And I've done a bit of modeling work. Um, you know, I do some modeling for a living. So I've done a little bit of modeling work, taking a look at this. 
I think if you are right now seeded 17 to 32, or you're thinking that you, um, you know, that, that, that's your niche, that you're, you know, a pretty good player, but you're not in the, the top five or the top 10, then changing the seeding and doing away with uh, the 17 to 32 seeds is going to make your life a lot more difficult. Uh, because you were protected from the big dogs in the first two rounds. Now you won't be. If you are one of the very top guys, the chance for an upset in an early round goes up slightly because you're exposed to those quite good players, the 17s to 32s. But another thing is that so are your rivals. So, you might be uh, the number two seed, let's say, and then from time to time you'll come up against, let's say, the number 20 seed in the first round or the second round. And that's a more difficult match, likely, than you would have expected early on in the tournament. But quite possibly uh, the number three seed who was drawn in, um, in your half or the number six seed who was drawn in your quarter is also coming up against uh, a stronger player and one of the things that you might find is that your path through the draw in the later stages of the tournament has been cleared out, much as Federer's was in the recent uh, Australian Open. When people were looking at Federer's draw uh, before the tournament started, they were penciling David Goffin and Juan Martin Del Potro as potential quarterfinal opponents. And in fact, what happened was that uh, Federer played a guy ranked in the, you know, nearly 100 in the round of 16, Martin Fuchsovic, and then he played Berdik, who's historically a strong player, but was was down, I think, seeded around about 19 or so in the quarterfinals. So clearing away the high seeds can have as big an impact as having some of the um, you know the mid-tier players, the 17s to 32 in the early rounds of the tournament. Interesting. So now let's focus more on the Lost Boys because uh, that's the last generation we always talk about. And I'm, I've studied some of the charts that you have put out there. Uh, there's also a ranking points threshold that uh, this generation really hasn't gone past. And that kind of uh, is fair grounds to make an argument that Generation Grigor is not good enough. Uh, is that a thesis conclusion that, you know, you've entertained or what's the counter argument? Yeah, so so when you think about, so so let's divide this up in, in, into two um, categories that I think might might help explain some of this. So, so first of all, ranking points. Um, there's a threshold I think of as round about 4,000 ranking points where you're almost certainly making it to the world tour finals if that's your ranking, the, the ranking points at the end of the year. And you're probably competing in the quarterfinal stages or beyond uh, in the majors. So the, the, the actual allocation of points has changed a bit over the years. But if we look at um, Generation Grigor, there are only four players who have gotten their peak ranking above 4,000 points. And I think from memory, those are Team 
um, Dimitrov, Raonic, and uh, Nishikori. Only four so far. For the Rafa generation, the previous generation, there were 13 players at that level. For the Federer generation, also 13 players at that level. For the generation before that, the Guga generation, you know, they were on the order of 17 players at that level. Um, when you go to the 6,000-point level, only one of Generation Gregor, Nishikori, has gotten up that high. Uh, from the Rafa generation, six players. From the Fed generation, about 10. From the Guga generation, about six. So you, you, you have no players from the, the Gregor generation up at the seven, 8,000 ranking point level, uh, you know, which is where you found players like um, Coria in the past, uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero, guys who you wouldn't have said were the top of their generation, the Federers, the Roddicks, the Hewitts, the Saffins, um, but but real challenges. So the ranking points thresholds, no question, the Gregor generation um, just just hasn't achieved. But let's also um, do a little bit of arithmetic, which might help people, you know, see how huge the gap has been. Because let's say that you you only allowed players to compete in majors or in masters thousands tournaments that fitted within a specific age window. And arbitrarily, let's make that between the ages of 24 and 28. So that's a five-year window. So if you were born between uh, the, uh, the years 1990 uh, and um, 1994, let's say, then you could compete from 2014 to 2018 in the Grand Slam level, only those players could compete. So if you have a generation window that's about five years and there's four Grand Slam tournaments, you would expect on average a generation to be able to win 20 majors, to get to 20 finals, to get to 40 semifinals. If you go into the Masters thousands, because there's nine of those instead of four, you'd expect a generation to win 45 Masters Thousands to get to 45 Masters Thousands finals and so on. So Generation Rafa has won 36 Grand Slams to date, and I'm uh, not including Australian Open 2018. Generation Fed up till the end of 2017 had won 25. Generation Pete had won 31. Generation Guga, the one before Fed, but after Pete, not quite as good, only nine. So there's a bit of variation. Generation Grigor, zero. Grand Slam finals, you'd have expected 20. Uh, two for Generation Grigor. Nishikori in 2014, Raonic in 2016. The Rafa generation, uh, 32 finals, the Fed generation, 24 finals, the Guga generation, again, not quite as good, 14 finals, the Peak generation, 27 finals. So you can do this for the Masters thousands as well. Um, the 
across the board when it comes to tournament performance, Generation Grigor is completely missing. They're just nowhere near where you would have expected them to be at this stage in their development. So it's possible that Generation Grigor, as they get towards their late 30s, is going to pick up some tournament wins. You, you would expect them to do so as Generation Fed ages out completely and Generation Rafa you know, moves well into their 30s. But now Generation Nick is coming up, Generation Felix is coming up, and, and you know my prediction, and you can come back to me in about five years' time and we'll see if I was right, is that Generation Grigor is going to get squeezed between Generation Rafa and Generation Nick. I actually see Generation Nick likely as having more significant long-term potential than Generation Grigor. So let's, uh, let's test that theory out in 2023. Uh, but let me go back to uh, uh, as a question because uh, Generation Guga, uh, that's a generation that has uh, uh, Safin and a uh, few of the other guys like Tommy Haas, I believe. So how many? Tommy Haas certainly. Safin is Generation Fed. Oh, he is okay. So okay, so it's, the generations are two and a half years uh, before and after your birthday. That's how you have. Uh, for- that's right. So Federer was born in August 1981. Safin was born in January 1980. So you know he, he's he's generation fed. The 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 guys who were the peak of um, generation Guga, Quirton, who won three Grand Slams, uh, Kafelnikov okay. won a couple. They were the only players from that generation to win multiple Grand Slams. Uh, you have Carlos Moya, Gaston Gaudio, uh, Albert Costa, and Thomas Johansson were the only ones to uh, to actually win Grand Slams uh, from that generation. Um, you have uh, you know, guys like Tim Henman, Magnus Norman, uh, as you said, Tommy Haas, uh, Koritsha, Nicholas Kiefer, but these aren't guys that you you go around and saying. When I was young, I saw Sebastian Grosjean play. You know, good player, but made four Grand Slam semifinals, um, won one Masters thousand, but not one of the the elite of the Open era. So let me ask you, Andrew, maybe you answered my question and gave me a good question as a follow-up. So you think uh, we are being extra, of course, numbers don't lie. We are being extra harsh on a Generation uh, Dimitrov because it is a generation that just could not break through because the previous generation, uh, the previous two generations were still competing and contending at the highest levels. But then looking at uh, Generation Guga, if you take Guga out, that generation might be even weaker uh, than uh, Generation Dimitrov. Uh, because Guga has, you know, three French Open titles. So you think, is that the anomaly there that's just separating the two, or Grigor Dimitrov generation is really uh, the seller-dweller generation so far? So, I mean, one thing about Generation Guga is if you look at the the major titles that they won, then there's nine Grand Slams, there's uh, a little bit over 30 Masters Thousands, so underperforming their benchmark. Um, and 
one of the things that you can look at is that the rise of generation fed, uh, so the, the great performances of Hewitt in the early 2000s and then Safin and then Roddick, Federer was actually a little bit of a latecomer in that generation, but some of the early successes there was because they were playing into a slightly weaker generation. And maybe some of the successes, the long-term successes that, that guys like Sampras and Agassi had, again, was that the, the guys who were coming behind them weren't quite as strong. But when you, you look at the overall stats for, for Generation Guga, they're, they're leagues ahead of Generation Grigor. I mean, just, just Generation Grigor is, is almost off the charts uh, weaker than, than, than any group that's come before. Um, so, you know, as, as you're looking at, at, let's just take Generation Grigor in, in order of their, their peak uh, rating points, you've got Nishikori, Raonic, Dimitrov, Dominic Team, then David Goffin, then Jack Sock, and now you're into Pablo Carreño Busto, Jerzy Janowicz, former Wimbledon semi-finalist and uh, Masters 1000 finalist in Paris in 2012. Uh, then Bernard Tomic, last seen on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here on Australian TV. Uh, Benoit Paire, Steve Johnson, Martin Cleason, Vasek Pospisil, Joao uh, Sousa, Federica Del Bonis, Jiri Vesely. I mean, now you're, you know, you're really getting into... You're, you're a real tennis fan if you've heard of half of these guys. Okay. Uh, so, Chilich is part of uh, Generation uh, Grigor, correct? Generation Rafa, born in... So, Chilich was born uh, about a week... I'm, I'm, I'm going to say he was born a week before... Um, Nope, I'm just checking. He was born five days after Juan Martín del Potro. So those are the guys who are the tail end of, of, of Generation Rafa. You've got del Potro, uh, major winner in 2009, just before his, his 21st birthday. Um, am I right? Twenty. It was 2009 that del Potro won the U.S. Open. So just before his 21st birthday, that's on schedule for when you would expect a really serious player in the open era to make uh, a worldwide breakthrough. And unfortunately for Del Potro, injuries, the wrist injuries that he had possibly have stopped him developing his full potential. But let me run down the list of um, Generation Rafa players that that have achieved serious ranking. So these are the guys who, by my calculations, got above about 4,000 rating points. Novak, Rafa, Andy Murray, Stan Wawrinka, Juan Martin Del Potro, Robin Soderling, who made uh, two Roland Garros finals and you know was potentially under Magnus Norman, uh, a, a potential real force before he got taken out by Mono. Songa and Berdic, perennial quarterfinalists and semifinalists, Chilich. Then you get to Gasquet, Bagdatis, Gilles Simon, Mario Ancic, 
another victim of, of, of Mono, Gael Monfils. So that you know that that's the kinds of players you've had in in the the generation Rafa and generation Fed. Federer himself, Leighton Hewitt, Andy Roddick, Juan Carlos Ferrero, Marat Safin, Guillermo Coria, David Ferrer, Nikolai Davidenko, David Nalbandian, Ivan Lubacic, Fernando Gonzalez. You know, those pretty strong players. Uh, you mentioned Del Potro's injury. I know this is all about stats and data. Uh, is there some somewhere a clause uh, you can factor in uh, for, again, going back to Generation Grigor because Raonic and Nishikori? have had more injuries than I think, you know, uh, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic combined will have in their careers. So is there a way to plug in injuries or that's something, you know, you can't control in this kind of a study? Gosh, I'm, it, 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 it's, hard to, it's hard to see how you'd factor that in. I mean, one of the things that could invalidate um, my hypothesis that Generation Grigor is genuinely going to be a lost generation is if, a player like Kei Nishikori manages to, to, to put together three or four healthy years and then manages to show us what he might have achieved in his mid-20s had he not been injured so often. Um, so, no, Let me explain my point. Maybe, maybe I didn't make sense uh, the first time around. Uh, I'm not saying these guys would have won slams, but uh, just a ranking, maximum ranking points uh, chart that you have where uh, this generation hasn't really gone past, say, you know, six thousand uh, ranking point. So maybe in a fully uh, a fully healthy season for Anishikori around it, maybe that's a possibility. Uh, that's what where I was going with. Uh, if they were not injured so often, gotcha. Yeah, I, I, and I think that's a hypothetical that it's really hard to answer. Um, I I think that an, uh, another way of looking at it is looking at those players at their peak what did they what have they actually achieved i mean two masters 1000 wins uh you know when some of the 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 elite players weren't uh weren't available um the two times that that one of those one of that group has actually made it into a grand slam final nishikori in 2014 um, and Raonic in Wimbledon in 2016, they didn't win a set. So it's possible, but uh, I, I'm 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 having a hard time seeing um, Kanishikori being as successful as let's say an Andy Roddick or um, an Andy Murray had they been fully fully healthy. No, it makes sense. Thanks for the explanation. So uh, let's focus on Generation Nick. I know you said Sasha Zverev is already, uh, you know, uh, ahead of the curve. And this generation may be, you know, headed for bigger and better things. But could it be again? Uh, because I know it's kind of, uh, it doesn't make sense to say Generation Rafa and Fed are declining. But at the same time, you know that Andy Murray and uh, Novak Djokovic are were not contending because they were having health issues. And I know Djokovic played their own final and Federer had a back issue. This is nothing to take away from Zverev. But uh, isn't it too early uh, to say otherwise? Because uh, if if he had lost two finals, would he still be ahead of the curve for Generation Nick if uh, Zverev did not win those finals? I know it's hypothetical. 
but reaching two finals as a 20-year-old, is that something that generation uh, Dimitrov did not do? So you, would you still place them ahead? I would, I think. So if you go back to the the front runners in, in Generation Rafa, uh, Djokovic made the Indian Wells final, his first Masters final uh, in early 2007 at the age of 19. Uh, then he won the Miami final, and then he also won the, the Montreal final that year, made the, the U.S. Open final in 2007 at the age of 20. And, and he was slightly befi- behind in an age breakthrough uh, Nadal, who was, um, I think, uh, 18 or 19 when he won his first Masters, probably 18, and had just turned 19 when he won his first Roland Garros. Um, you had uh, Marcus Bagdatis, uh, born in uh, June 1985, who made a... a Grand Slam final in 2006. And what a lot of people forget is he also made the Wimbledon semi-final that year. Uh, so what you, what you tend to see is you tend to see a player uh, be the, the spear carrier for a generation, not necessarily the top player for that generation. So Federer is the top player from generation fed, but I think in uh you know, early 2003, you would have put him behind Hewitt, Safin, Roddick, and Ferrero as you know, likely likely to succeed. So Zverev being the the spear carrier for Generation Nick, you've got players like uh, Kyrgios himself, obviously a hugely talented player. So if he manages to um, to draw the threads together. Um, Kyrgios has a huge potential upside. Cincinnati final, so he's, in, he's you're right. He's ahead of uh, Generation Grigor because none of those guys reached a Masters 1000 final at his age as well. Correct. That's right. Uh, then you've got uh, Luca Pui. Uh, you've got Borna Chorich. And then the two players, Chung and Edmund, who made the Australian Open semifinals, um, guys like Rublev, uh, Medvedev. So, I, you know, I think that you've got um, a fairly strong argument that if we fast forward two years, it's possible that that some of the the – the guys from Generation Grigor will have gotten healthy, will have gotten their act together. Um, maybe Dominic Team will make a deep run in Roland Garros. Uh, maybe Milos Raonic will serve players off the court at, at Wimbledon. But by that time, Generation Nick will have had two more years to put on some muscle and two more years to to work out really how to be consistent at the the top levels of the game. So that's why my five-year prediction was, I think that the lost boys are going to be squeezed out. And when we look back, when we close the book on, on this group, you know, we're going to see that um, it, it, it was a something of a missing generation. 
Absolutely. I think I tried my best, but I think it's a losing argument. The numbers don't lie and your study is pretty conclusive. Uh, so before we, uh, before we go further, uh, The Dark Age is Coming, that was the title of, uh, of a thesis you wrote a few years ago. So the Dark Age was kept in mind after the big four leave. Uh, is, was that the insinuation? And uh, if that's the case, is the Dark Age delayed or where do we stand? So the Dark Ages was was a, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it was basically the, the argument that when you have a, a major final or a set of major finals, so let's just take, take the Grand Slams, 128 players enter, what you're a little bit nervous about is any of them can win. Because I think that tennis thrives on the balance between a degree of predictability and a degree of the unexpected. Uh, seeing Chong and Edmund make deep runs um, would have been disappointing if you're a Djokovic fan, seeing him fall in the round of 16 to Chong would have been a disappointment. But then you might have said, well, let's see how deep this guy can go. Is he one of the players who's going to shake up the tour? But I think too much unpredictability really doesn't do a tour good. So if we get to the point where you have, it's the Australian Open 2021, let's say, and any one of 30 players could win it, then for some people that might be, wow, that's, that's really great. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch a fortnight of tennis. If you live in North America as we do, You'll get up at 1.30 in the morning or 2.30 in the morning to watch the, the later rounds, and it's, I have no idea who's going to win. But I also think that tennis thrives on rivalries. It's really thrived on the rivalries between the big four over the last few years. It thrived before that on um, the Lendl-McEnroe rivalry, uh, on McEnroe Connors, Agassi against Sampras, that, that I think tennis really is a story of rivalries and, and strong players. So if we get to the stage where it's the Australian Open 2021 and, and you know, we just have no idea who's going to win, then I think something's diminished. And that's, for me, the dark age. It's where it's sort of, okay, the players may be great athletes, they may be able to, to, to play some, some great rallies, but, but what you can't see is players that, that 10 or 15 years from now you're going to look back on and say, boy, the Zverev generation and you know, the Zverev-Kyrgios rivalry, you think about, the, you think about the, the eight Grand Slam finals that Nick and uh, Sasha played against each other. Do you remember that? magnificent Australian Open. Well, that wasn't as good as the Roland Garros final. But what about the Wimbledon, you know, the pair of Wimbledon finals that they played? That's one of the things that that, that keeps me coming back to tennis. So you go back to, to Generation Grigor, um, there really aren't any rivalries that have come out of Generation Grigor at all. So now I'm looking forward a few years and I'm saying, Let's hope that the ATP brings up players who are able to compete consistently for the highest titles. You don't necessarily have to have a successor to the big four, 
but you want to have players who can compete consistently and give you the kind of matches that you 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 watch and then later on you say i'm going to keep that one in my memory and the atp in the 2020s was a wonderful era because we had new developments we had new players come through we had some great rivalries and we had rivalries to compare to Djokovic versus Nadal or Federer versus Nadal or Sampras versus Agassi or Borg against McEnroe. Fair enough, Andrew. That's very insightful and uh, it's a wonderful chat. And uh, uh, I think we can end on this note. But uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, if I even try to think a lot of my tennis uh, uh, friends uh, who may be a little casual about the following, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, not many know uh, Raonic or Nishikori or Goffin, and uh, it, it's a shame. But you know, this is a this is one generation that uh, somehow got sandwiched between between time and uh, and you're absolutely right that uh, Generation Nick and Generation Sasha, this uh, the same generation. Uh, good things are around the corner. You can definitely sense a budding rivalry. Yep. All right. So that was uh, Andrew and his uh, thesis. Uh, and you know, you know where he lives on Twitter. So if something I didn't cover and if it was a little ambiguous, feel free to shoot him a tweet or you know even copy me, and we can uh, take this conversation outside of the podcast. But it was very insightful, Andrew. Uh, I'm delighted we did this, and hopefully everybody who tunes in enjoys. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on, Sakib. It's uh, uh, it 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 fills some of my uh, inner geek to 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 get deep into the numbers here. So if any of your listeners uh, want to shoot me a tweet, then uh, I'll be happy to either augment or defend the thesis. And there's probably lots of people with different points of view, so I'll look forward to some spirited discussions. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you.